Welcome to The R Word. We're here to talk about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. Last time in episode one, I introduced myself and previewed the podcast. Today in episode two, we will talk to Greg Thompson about his book, Reparations, a Christian Call to Repentance and Repair. Let's listen to a clip about the book. We have three callings to see, to own, to repair. Open your eyes to see I am invisible. Simply because people refuse to see me. It's not because I am not here or do not exist. This is the truth about American racism and the way it shapes both our individual and common lives. I too sing America. I too am America. The time Now, let me introduce my friend Greg. Greg Thompson received a PhD from the University of Virginia and is a pastor, scholar, artist, and producer. He is the executive director of Voices Underground, a research fellow in African-American heritage at Lincoln University and visiting theologian for mission at Grace Mosaic Church in Washington, DC. Greg, thanks for being with us today. Man, thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. Well, we appreciate it. Um, Greg, first, uh, can you share some of your story with us? Who are you and why are you here today? Sure. Uh, so as you said, I'm, I'm Greg Thompson. Um, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, I think for the past 20 years, I've been working at the intersection of Christian faith and practice um, and the reality of American racism and trying to understand what resources the Christian church and the Christian tradition and the Bible give to people like me um, to engage what we see as this longstanding tragic reality in, in American culture. Um, and so now I, you know, I do that in a variety of ways, most, most fully through Voices Underground, which is an organization that is uh, devoted to helping local communities promote African-American culture and history and tell those stories so that we can heal. And I, and I think that's that's just one part of the work of repair. Thank you for that introduction, Greg. I think you understated, uh, you, you do do a variety of things. You're, you're certainly a Renaissance man. And um, man, you've been such a blessing to me as I've gotten to know you and read your book and spent time with you in Charlottesville and, and Philadelphia and other places. And so have really appreciated you as a friend and a teacher. Um, and I think that, that we have a lot to learn um, from you and from your book specifically. Um, which I'd like to spend some time discussing now. So, um, Greg, you, you opened the book with the story of Jordan Anderson. Can you tell us the story and explain what it illustrates? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Jordan Anderson was um, a formerly enslaved man um, and in Tennessee. And um, he, he was an enslaved man in the, uh, up to the Civil War, at which point he, uh, he fled the plantation up, into, up to Ohio. And um, after the war was over, his, uh, his former um, slaveholder uh, wrote him and asked him to return to the plantation because everything was falling apart and said that he needed his help. Um, and Jordan Anderson wrote this very famous letter in response where he basically says, I mean, it's a, it's a masterpiece, um, <laughs> but when, uh, the sum of it is, um, 
you owe me for all of the things that I did for you um, that you coerced with with fear and with violence. Um, and I have no way of knowing um, that you are in good faith unless you pay me back those things that you took from me. Um, and what it really illustrates is that um, no matter how intimate the relationship may have been, um, I mean, they, they had shared space, they knew the same people, they lived um, and worked and raised families um, adjacent to one another. But no, no matter how close that is, the thing that actually um, demonstrates the reality of our commitment to one another is this justice of repair and reparations. Um, and that, that really is a launching point for the book because we think it's a really important launching point for the discussion. And I think it might be interesting for your listeners to know that Jordan Anderson, it's J-O-U-R-D-A-N Anderson, and that letter can be found online. So it's a really amazing piece of work. open the introduction and I think every chapter with a story to uh, illustrate as well as explain the content in the book. Um, so the book has three parts, the call to see, the call to own, and the call to repair. But in the introduction, you first outline uh, the subsequent chapters. And, and one thing that struck me in the introduction was you stated that um, reparations requires a conversation between two groups of people. So but before we jump into the content, the call to see, the call to own, the call to repair, you and I are two white folks talking about reparations. Can, can you help our listeners understand what the role of white people is and is not in the conversation about reparations? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, you know, one of the things that we had to wrestle with and when I wrote the book, I wrote it with a friend of mine, Duke Kwan, who's a Korean-American was why are we writing this book? And I think over time, and this is of special uh, relevance to me as a, you know, as you said, as a, as a man that America characterizes as white, um, is um, that, you know, the reparations conversation is by nature a two-party conversation. There are those to whom reparations are owed and those who owe reparations. Um, and I am speaking out of that latter group. Um, and I think, the the things the thing that we've had to keep in mind is what are the what are the relevant parts of each of those conversations right and and as as the as somebody who is in the community that owes reparations that means that my work is to tell the truth about what has happened to take responsibility for that and then to try to um, encourage other people in this group to do the same thing those are my responsibilities. Um, what are not my responsibilities is to determine how how these resources should be deployed, what stories should be told, et cetera. Um, that is the that is the the proper conversation that that um, of those to whom reparations are owed. They they get to determine what stories are told. They get to determine how the resources are deployed. And so, I'm in this book. I think what we're trying to do is just represent and model our half of that conversation. And we gesture toward the other half of the conversation in the last chapter of the book, but that's that's what we mean by this two-party conversation and which, which part is appropriately our own. Thank you for that, Greg. That's been really important to me as I've entered into this conversation and you've modeled that well. 
in part one, you describe the call to see and you define both racism and white supremacy. So first you describe four ways to see racism. Can you outline those for us? Yeah, well, we, we realized that um, lots of people, uh, I mean, not as many as, as we would like, of course, but lots of people care about racism and they try to do something about it. But very few people talk meaningfully about reparations. And we thought, why is that? Um, and I think the answer is, it's what you do about racism depends on what you think racism is. Uh, so first, if you think that racism is just a personal prejudice, it's just something in your heart, then, then what you'll do is you'll try to change your heart and your perspectives um, with personal repentance. Um, that, or other, other people will say, no, it's not just a personal prejudice. It's actually a relational estrangement that we're actually estranged from each other. And so if that's what you think racism is, then um, it requires relational reconciliation, which has been, you know, been a, a lot of the movement, especially in evangelical churches since the 90s. Um, and then, you know, others will say, well, no, it's not just about relationships. It's actually about institutions. There are institutions like the criminal justice system, et cetera, that, that are broken. There's an institutional uh, problem. Um, and if that's what you think it is, then your work is institutional reform. Um, and so we see people devoting themselves to institutional reform and education and healthcare and criminal justice and things like that. Um, but none of those get you quite to reparations. Uh, and that, that is because racism is not just any of those three things, although it is all of them. It's not just those things. It's actually an entire cultural order um, and an entire social system that has been um, created and sustained uh, and has taken so much from African-American communities. And so if you see that it's a broken, uh, it's, a, it's a broken cultural order, what we call a cultural disorder, then the answer to that is not just personal repentance or re relational reconciliation or institutional reform, it's actually cultural repair. And that is how we, we get to reparations as a meaningful category. Yeah, that model has been really helpful to me to think about racism in terms of concentric circles, that it, it is an individual problem, but it's also interpersonal, institutional, and cultural. And therefore, we need right. to, to think about solutions on all four levels. That's, um, right. That's a great way to say that, yeah. Yeah. So you, you alluded to this, but talk to us more about that cultural disorder um, in terms of, of white supremacy. So in the book, I think you use the terms essence and effect. So we want to talk about or understand what white supremacy is, uh, perhaps what those words mean, why they're why it's important to use them, and then what white supremacy does. Excuse me, what white supremacy does. Um, so can you help us understand the essence and effect of white supremacy? So the language of, of white supremacy is, to say the least, controversial. And so we had to think about, is this, is this language we want to use? And we ultimately came to the conclusion that, the conclusion that it, it is the language that we want to use. Um, and we felt like it's the only language that really tells the truth. And what we mean by it is um, a couple of things. First, that it's a society, that, that we're a society that has been predicated upon a certain kind of a racial distinction. Um, and that there are people that this culture designates as white, and then there are people that designates as non-white, and those are categories that were not used before. 
um, before we were more tribally or quote ethnically identified, Irish, German, etc. And then secondly, that it's a society that privileges people at a in a certain part of that racial hierarchy, namely white people, by giving them social and political historical advantages. That doesn't mean that every white person's had an easy life. It doesn't mean that everybody is wealthy. In fact, we know the opposite to be true. It's just to say that in terms of its legal life, in terms of its historical practices, in terms of the demonstrable demonstration of its resources, and, um, and in terms of the people who occupy its positions of power, those are incontrovertibly people that this culture deems to be white. And so when thinking about that, it seemed important to say this is a culture whose legal infrastructure, especially in economic and, and certainly local relational infrastructure as well, was designated to, um, to reward and sustain rewarding people that it deems to be white and correlatively to denigrate those people and marginalize those people um, socially and economically speaking that it deems to be not white. And that's just, that's just a really important thing for people to acknowledge that this white supremacy, um, it was original to the American founding. This is not something as people say, oh, white supremacy is this Marxist category. That's just false. This is original to the American founding. Um, it's pervasive across all of these institutions. It doesn't matter whether you're looking at education or healthcare or burial practices or neighborhood zoning or employment or anything else. Um, this, you can see this tendency across all of our institutions and it endures throughout our history. Um, and so that's, that's why we use the language of white supremacy. And that's in essence what it is. It is this original pervasive and enduring social tendency um, and structural tendency to, to privilege and reward those people that are deemed to be white. And again, it doesn't mean that everybody who is deemed to be white experiences their life through the privilege. It just means as a general practice and a rule, that's what this, how the society has functioned. And you asked about the effect, and the effect is essentially um, what we say. There are many effects, but we think the most fundamental one is theft, that it is that um, the white supremacy has been an act of a multi-generational sustained act of, of cultural theft. Yeah, and, and you say in the book that white supremacy affects a threefold theft of truth, wealth, and power, um, which I think is an important part of your argument um, that you're not just talking about economics, but you're also talking about truth and power. Um, is that something that you can expand on a bit now? Sure. When we were thinking about, you know, the, the real impact of white supremacy, um, on African-Americans and on Native peoples as well, um, we began to see that although the reparations conversation, especially since the 1960s, has been primarily form, uh, framed in terms of money um, and the return of money, and there are good historical reasons for that, um, white supremacy actually stole more than money. Um, and we say it also stole truth. That is to say that it, it stole the truth about um, what it means to be a human being, and it's told the truth about the history of this country. Um, I mean, one of the one of the features of, of white supremacy has been to really hide a lot of its uh, of its own wickedness um, and to erect monuments and stories about its own greatness um, and to correlatively denigrate um, and ignore and, and 
Barry stories um, about African American culture and history. Um, and you can see that in our films, you can see it in our court squares, you can, you can see it in, in all kinds of national mythologies that we hold. Um, and so there's the, it's, it stole truth, it also stole power, which is to say, not only an obviously bodily agency from enslaved people, um, but also institutional and political agency, um, whether it's the vote or whether it's access to institutions, that's a form of cultural and social power that it was that was also taken. So truth and power, um, and that by the way continues to be taken. Um, and then wealth, you know, I mean, it, it is to say, uh, in saying that truth and power are also a part of what was stolen, it's not to say that wealth isn't a, a central part. It is. I mean, the fact is that America, um, American white supremacy extracted an enormous amount of wealth from um, enslaved workers and low wage workers um, through the kind of tenant farmer sharecropping system, but also um, that it obstructed attempts for African Americans to gain wealth through banking and through home ownership and things like that historically, um, which is why as late as the, you know, the 1960s, we're having fair housing acts, right, to try to because the government recognizes that there are discriminatory practices that are keeping African-Americans from being able to own homes and in um, economically privileged neighborhoods, and therefore they couldn't build wealth. So it's truth, it's power, and it's wealth, and a work of reparations will really have to deal, in our view, with, with all of those things. Yeah, I so appreciated your treatment of white supremacy, and um, it became clear to me that while I might be uncomfortable with the words white supremacy, they were the correct terms to describe the historical problem. And your, your treatment of white supremacy as threefold theft of truth, wealth, and power really gave me a new lens uh, with which to see my community, both uh, my state here in Arkansas and even uh, the Northwest corner, uh, Washington County, to see gaps as it relates to truth, wealth, and power. So, uh, you know, the black-white monument gap, the black-white wealth and income gaps uh, in my state and in my county and uh, in terms of power, you know, the over-incarceration of, of black people and the under-representation of black folks in government. And so, um, again, just the, the words white supremacy and your expansion of, of what that means, what it is, what it has done, has really helped me to see my community anew and give me a new urgency as to, you know, what, what therefore do we need to do? about that. And so it's been tremendously helpful, uh, if not comfortable, um, for me. Well, thank uh, you for saying that. Thank you, because I, I do feel like that once you once you begin to see it, you you, you can't really unsee it. Um, you know, I mean, there's just a, there's just a sense in which um, it doesn't even feel controversial you know, <laughs> after after a fashion to begin to look at this and go, wait a minute. OK, this is this is demonstrable and visible everywhere. So I think your experience um, of what you've seen hopefully will be had by you know many people around the country as they begin to look through these this lens. You know. Yeah. Well, let's transition to part two, um, the call to own. So before we jump into that and, and talk about the role and ethic of the church, uh, if you will tell us another story. Um, about James Foreman and the Black Manifesto? Well, yeah, um, a lot of people, um, you know, have, have probably not heard of that, but James Foreman was a really central leader in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, you know, worked with King, worked with others, 
um, and was a part of the Selma March and Selma and Montgomery March. Um, became really disillusioned with the kind of slowness um, and surface level reforms that were being discussed um, and how strong the resistance was to black equality in this country. And so in 1968, um, uh, correct me, I think it was 68, it could have been 69, but I think it was 68 when uh, James Foreman went to Riverside Church in New York City and walked down the central aisle and went up to the pulpit in the middle, <laughs> middle of the service and read a document that he had written called the Black Manifesto, which was basically talking about the role of churches um, and synagogues and other religious communities in the suppression of Black people and how those religious communities owed reparations to African-Americans. Um, and it was, a, it was a little bit like a lightning bolt that just kind of came in and really lit up the whole landscape for a, a while where churches and religious communities began to talk about this in the, in the late 1960s. Um, and we, um, we really think that it, at the heart of his argument, his, his belief that churches had provided moral sanctuary for this kind of behavior and, and this culture to emerge and therefore were complicit and responsible. We think that that's right. And so we wanted to, to use that as an illustration of what we were, um, what we were talking about and, and um, how that call really endures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I so enjoyed and appreciated your telling of that story. And I think in addition to the story of Jordan Anderson, it demonstrates that you know, the call to reparations is not a new call. It's, it's an old one, uh, whether we look back to the 1860s or the 1960s, uh, or now here we are in 2020, uh, this is not a new idea. Um, and so I appreciated the, the multiple stories you tell in the book that, that demonstrate that. Um, and that it's, it's a call that's specific to the church and that that's not a new idea either. Um, so let's talk for a minute about the church so in part two, you describe the call to own and you define the role of the church relative to white supremacy and the ethic or, or really the two ethics of the church relative to white supremacy using uh, some biblical stories. So first, can you talk to us about the role of the church relative to white supremacy? Yeah, I mean, it's the church's role is complicated, um, historically speaking. I mean, on the one hand, um, the church, um, I mean, and when we say church, just we're talking about both individual people who profess faith. We're talking about local congregations. We're also talking about, you know, national, more national scale institutions like denominations and seminaries and, and networks and things like that. Um, on the one hand, those churches um, were unquestionably a part of, supportive of, um, moral advocates of the system of white supremacy. Um, and provided moral sanctuary to to it and were were um bystanders to it and beneficiaries of it you know i mean there are stories that we tell about churches revising their baptismal liturgies to make sure that black people knew that when they were even though they were baptized into the church they weren't equal to their masters we tell stories about churches that owned and pastors that owned uh, enslaved workers as a major part of the church's wealth and fundraising so these things are, again, these are undeniable historically, and these are broad trends. These aren't a few, you know, one-off yahoos somewhere. This is like a central practice. Um, but on the other hand, um, churches, um, and including African-American churches, uh, eventually 
um, when African American churches became became it came into increasing prominence in the you know in the in the late nineteenth century. Um, uh, but this will also be true of of white abolitionists and African American abolitionists. Um, there were churches that resisted white supremacy and did it explicitly, named it as such, and saw it as central to their mission. And so, you know, the idea here is that the church has been as complicated as American history itself um, and on these matters and, and uh, both affirming and supporting and justifying white supremacy on the one hand and others on the other hand, um, really giving themselves to resisting it. And that's that's part of um that's part of the, you know, the work that we are trying to take up ourselves. One thing that stuck out to me, um, and, and maybe you can help me with this specific language, but you talked about the need to um, resist white supremacy um, because of the churches for the sake of the church's integrity. Um, and you suggested that the, the American church exists in a, a unique cultural context, namely the longest standing white supremacist society in the history of the world did i did i get that right and, and tell me what what that what that means why why that matters well you know um you did you did get that right and that we we mean that in a very specific kind of way we mean that really from its early days america was in a unique position because of its unique role in um as the as the locus um as, as the Americas, broadly speaking, were of the, the transatlantic slave trade. Amer the Americas were having to deal with this racial hierarchy problem in ways that were not yet true in Europe. Um, and so um, when we talk about America being the longest standing white supremacist social order in history, what we mean is that at a time when Europe was not yet having to deal with these things in terms of codifying these laws and all these kinds of things, um, America was putting in a very clear, uh, not just racial, but specifically anti-black racial hierarchy that is not was not seen everywhere else uh, at that time. Um, and that it was, um, again, as we've said already, it was pervasive across the institutions. I mean, it, it was very clear about what where African-Americans could live, whether they could vote, whom they could marry, what kind of employment they could have, what kind of um, social services, if any, they had access to. So that is when we when we talk about that, America as a, a longstanding white supremacist social order, that's what we mean, that, that it, in terms of its political and cultural and social infrastructure, it really has no parallel in terms of the duration and, and power of its anti-black racism. Um, and that seems really important for the American church to take seriously. Um, I mean, it would be like neglecting that would be like being a church in Johannesburg and never thinking about the apartheid or being a church in Rwanda and never thinking about the genocide. It just, it just doesn't make sense to, to say that you're an institution that is created to serve God by um, loving your neighbor in a specific context and then ignoring the, the profound like psychological, moral, economic, educational, et cetera, et cetera, implications of that, of the social order in which you live. And so we really believe that, that because of this unique and distinctive characterization of American or character of American culture, the churches have a real responsibility to take this seriously 
as a central part of their of their social mission addressing this. Yeah, that was really powerful to me uh, to read that uh, a light bulb moment for sure. Um, but tell us more about why the church should care. Yeah, sure. So when when Duke again, my co-author Duke Kwan and I were thinking about the kind of um, the moral imperative, meaning there's not just a mission imperative like that the church has, which is oh, we live in this culture, so therefore we ought to address this. There's also a moral imperative that comes out of the Christian faith itself. It's not contextual, but that is like essential, I guess. Um, and and so what are, what is the kind of moral um, argument? Um, and we remembering that that the effect of white supremacy was theft. The question then became, all right, well, what is the church's response to theft? What is the Christian church's historic response to theft? What should it be? Um, and so we began, as we began to look at the scriptures and look at the Christian tradition, we began to realize, well, there are actually two, two kind of what we call moral logics to responding to, for responding to theft. One of those is found in the Zacchaeus story. And for those listeners who are not familiar with that, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which meant that he was sort of an instrument of the Roman Empire for the oppression of the Jewish nation um, or the Jewish people through this like exploitative practice of tax collecting, where he would not just collect the taxes that were owed, but he could collect much more than that for his own personal gain. So this is somebody who was complicit in a theft, explicitly complicit in the theft encounters Jesus. And what he says is, you know, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I defrauded anybody of anything, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. Now that, as we say in the book, that wasn't just Zacchaeus freaking out. That was, um, uh, and like, you know, having this sentimental moment, he was actually channeling the Hebrew scriptures there. That really is the ethic that's laid down in the old Testament, what what Christians call the old Testament. Um, and so that is to say when you're complicit in a theft, when you are yourself involved in it um, or a beneficiary of it, the ethic of the Christian church is restitution, that you pay back what, what, what you took. So that's the first story. And, and we try to demonstrate that not only in that passage, but across the biblical tradition and certainly across the Christian tradition where people are very explicit that theft is something that needs to be redressed through restitution. But um, what about people that are not complicit? In a theft, what what is our obligation? Because people go, well, my you know my family never owned slaves, or you know whatever. Um, well, I think that requires us to wrestle with another story about theft, which is the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, which is, as people will know, this is a person that came upon a theft that had happened. They found a person lying on the side of the road that had been beaten and robbed. Um, the Good Samaritan had no role in that; they were not complicit in any way. And yet they still took the responsibility to, um, to do essentially what Zacchaeus had done, which is to use their, their resources to restore this person to wholeness. Um, and we call that not the ethic of restitution, but the ethic of restoration. Um, and we see that both of those are really operative, that whether you're complicit or not in a theft, um, the Christian response of love is to restore and to repair um, the, those who have been defrauded to wholeness. And, and Jesus actually says that, that is, that's the story that he tells to define what neighbor love is. Okay? It's a story about uh, repairing people who have been stolen from, even though you may, you may not have been complicit. And so that, we think that those two forms of moral logic, logical restitution when you're complicit and restoration when you're not, 
um, both apply and are and are necessary for us to embrace. I'm still not who I'm meant to be. I'm holding back. I just relax. We're living in a moment in which certain phrases, um, certainly white supremacy is one of those, reparations is one of those, racism is, is also even one of those, um, become like emotional triggers that that people just um, require people to shut down and just dismiss conversations without really listening or understanding at all. And I would just want to encourage readers who can, I mean, listeners who can, to, to try to avoid that tendency and to really open ourselves to the questions of what is true about who we have been as a people? What are the effects of that truth? What are the obligations on me in light of that truth? And what is possible if I were to embrace those obligations? Um, in other words, to remain open to something like um, a moral change on the other side of our deep polarizations. Um, and that, that I think is going to be the prerequisite for any, for any healing. We have to be able to see the truth for what it is. Um, and that is not a popular thing to do right now. We have to be able to take ownership and responsibility for that truth in our own lives um, and not in the abstract. And then we have to give ourselves to the work of repairing what we have seen and now owned. And that is going to take small um, small steps from all of us. It's not one big program or initiative that's going to fix us. This is, this is a small daily act, not only of Christian faithfulness, but of democratic citizenship. And so I would just want to encourage the, the listeners to take that up with you and with me and with so many others who are and have been doing this, this work uh, in the hopes of a new community. Thank you for those words, Greg. Um, that's all for episode two. You can contact me at reparationsnownwa at gmail.com. Come back for episode three to talk to Jamar Tisby about the Witness Foundation next time. Thanks. Thanks so much. The luxury of the option of participation is great, right? Man, this is a great life. Man, we did something right. And I've struggled with hugging my daughters, knowing homies who can't no more. And enjoying the time I got while living in attention of the world's imperfection. Locking in on the sovereign reign of the king of all kings. Trusting he'll make right all things. He'll make right all things.